Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Our guest on today's podcast is Abhilisha Sinha. She is the Chief Growth Officer at Open Secret. Her true love are the intersections of business, technology, creativity, and analytics, and soft and hard skills. Welcome to the show. Great to talk to you. Thank you for having me, Darshan. Looking forward to this. So I'm curious, you've had quite a diverse career, and you've had quite a path from your previous engagement to Open Secret from various other roles. Walk me through some of the diverse paths you've taken. And also, if you can tell me some of the aha moments that have brought you to where you are now. You know, I'm going to sort of break it down into three parts, just to simplify it, because this has been a very interesting and diverse journey so far. So I think the first one is, frankly, what is the connection between all these industries, right? So I have worked across education, healthcare, consumer tech, and now I'm on the e-commerce, food and beverages space, right? And I think fundamentally, the goal behind all of these is just looking at how technology or business models can just innovate in a completely new fashion on behalf of consumers, right? Education has been done for years together. But how do you think about scaling education to the most remote parts of a country at 100th the cost, right? So you're suddenly looking at the same problem statement with a completely fresh set of eyes. Similarly, if you're looking at health tech, how do hospitals or very established organizations think about things like digital healthcare, about virtual health, all of these new buzzwords, how do they keep up? And you know, if I talk about what I'm doing currently, how do you think about not just being a brand in this up and coming better for you health segment for food and beverage, but how do you make this aggregated effort for your consumer? How do you make it a one-stop destination where they can get any better for you option across their day, right? So very, very sort of standard industries, but a completely new way of looking at them from a technology or business lens and really innovating on their behalf. So that's really been the connecting link across all of these industries. Second, I think for me, I've always been somebody who worked at intersections, right? So I majored in mechanical engineering of all things way back in my undergrad, got my MBA later. I have a lot of artistic ambitions in my personal life. I write creatively. So you can imagine this is sort of a left and right brain scenario. So I've often taken on roles that help me leverage those, right? Really sort of play and thrive in those environments. I often joke that actually there isn't a single function in an organization that I haven't run at some point or the other, right? So everything from product, business, uh, that's more standard. But there is a time when I ran the HR function, the people operations function for a startup I worked at. And that was fascinating, right? Because suddenly everyone has a perspective on what role HR plays or not. But I really knew how we were really innovating on behalf of the employee over there. So how do you think about equity? How do you think Think about incentives. How do you think about all of this while keeping your cash burn low, right? So I think in many ways, it's this left and right intersection. And I think one thing that I've often done, you know, and this is coming to the last part of your question, the aha moments, right? I think individuals should think about themselves as products, if you will, 
and keep innovating and growing better over time and really thinking about their value proposition and how they're enhancing it. So to make this more concrete, I understood that the fact that I have these very diverse strengths was something that I had to channelize and not hold me back. Like I wasn't going to be the best coder out there, but I could be somebody who could like develop products in literally any space you name, right? From cutting edge biotech to something which is e-commerce. So really understanding the core of your value proposition. Second, really the learning curve of it. So, you know, I started off in very, very deep functional roles, really understood some functions very well. And then I was like, hey, I need to challenge myself. I don't want to so early in my career get straightjacketed. And I very consciously chose to go for more cross-functional roles, whether that was in consulting, that was as a chief of staff, heading a strategy and operations function. So really thinking about what is the next skill that I'm trying to bring. And I think number three, and I know this is sort of almost like a cliche, but eventually a lot of innovation, a lot of company building, a lot of product building is eventually about humans. And we talk a lot about innovating on behalf of the consumers, but having run functions like HR, sometimes you're innovating on behalf of the employee, right? I've run finance functions. So I know sometimes you're innovating on behalf of your vendors. How do you have mutually beneficial cash flow relationships? And similarly, when you think about even extremely large Fortune 100 companies innovating, I mean, there's a lot to do about structure, processes, innovation, but eventually it's also about people and their incentives. So yeah, I think those, you know, really across functions, skills, and fundamentally people, right? Like how do you think about who you're innovating for? And when you bring that lens, you're able to see very diverse things as interesting problem statements. That's a large, broad introduction, and I'd love to go deeper on some of these as we talk today. Well, I actually want to go deeper on your journey. What drives you? And I think it's a couple of things if I'm hearing right, but I want to hear what really you think drives you. Is it one genuine curiosity or is it innovation or is it that you want to learn to be human? And I'm kind of hearing all of it, but I'm wondering, did you just always be this way or is there some moments that made you realize and go deeper into either any one of these three? Yeah, and I think it's sort of a combination of three, right? You know, I often sort of codify what's the value I bring to the table and what do I want to become, right? Because that's your professional and personal journey. So I think first one's just been innate curiosity, right? As somebody who right from a very young age has multidisciplinary nature, I can see the linkages where a lot of people can't. People would ask me, how do you connect engineering to the first time I had to build a pedagogical model for education in an offline environment? I actually thought a lot about industrial engineering, which was how do you think of your rate determining step? How do you make those connections? How do you sort of really run this as a very tight assembly line, if you will? And what's the place you bring in the expert? So in many ways, it's curiosity, but it's also just a linkages of being able to see the world in many different ways. So that's been number one. I think number two, and I remember when we were chatting earlier, it's like I'm an extremely structured person who can thrive in very unstructured environments. And that's not been the case from day one. If you would have spoken to me when I was in high school, like, you know, 10, 15 years back, and that suddenly makes me feel very old, I would have told you that I'm going to stay in structured environments all my life because I naturally thrive in structured environments. I plan my holidays over an Excel, right? So that gets to a certain statement of being structured. But professionally, I was very fortunate to get an early admit to Harvard Business School when I was in my final year of undergrad. 
And I had essentially two or three years to go pursue my professional dreams, knowing that eventually I'd get to go to arguably one of the best MBA programs in the world. And that really made me pause and think at the age of 22. And I was like, I know I'm good at this structured environment, but I don't think that there are some things that I'm good at. I don't handle ambiguity really well. I'm not someone who's sort of very good with open-ended problem statements. I'm not somebody who's able to adapt as rapidly as I'd like. And something told me that these things are going to become increasingly valuable as technology takes over a lot of the mundane day-to-day stuff. And that's where I honestly threw myself into the deep end. I joined a startup that hadn't been registered. I, at the old age of 22, was designing an education methodology for students who were 18, 19 years old, and which was like sort of going to reach 100,000 students. And I had no idea, right? So just starting from first principles, asking the right questions, having a curiosity instead of a fear, you know, it was all a learning process. And it just began by throwing myself into the deep end. And knowing that it would work. And sometimes I'm really thankful, right? When we hear all of these conversations around the future of work, around what jobs are going to stay, what's going to get automated. I'm actually really glad that I threw myself actively into environments which were about tackling these problem statements that are almost impossible to automate. So yeah, definitely not a natural one. In fact, I would say it was completely the opposite when I got started. (laughs) And there's the other element about understanding humans more, it seems. What was behind that that made you want to focus on human behavior and motivations and triggers? Sure. I'll be completely honest. Abject failure. And that was when I was in my first job designing a hybrid educational learning system. I went in feeling I knew everything. And I also just felt like, hey, I've just taken these systems that have done well in other countries. I'm going to just copy paste them to the context I was working on, make a few sort of tweaks, and we'd be all set to go, right? Tech-driven education is going to change the world and all of that. And I just realized I was fundamentally wrong. You know, humans like tech, but they also love and thrive on interaction. When you're serving in a field like education, while you're consumer slash end user is your student, the parent, especially in a country like India, is actually the decision maker of that business transaction. When you're thinking about a public good like education, you're actually thinking about the government, you're thinking about large institutional stakeholders. And you have to eventually find a sweet spot, which is sort of eventually pushing the student learning forward, but also keeping these people happy. So my first knife into implementation, which was literally taking the best videos in English that half my students couldn't follow and hoping it would suddenly change everything and realizing it was a complete failure meant that I had to step back and really think What were people, and not just the end user, but what were different stakeholders wanting out of this value proposition? I think that was just a very, very real lesson. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into getting that pilot off the ground. And a lot of blood, sweat, and tears followed when I realized how many assumptions I had made by just copy-pasting stuff and not really thinking about the human and the stakeholders. And I've been very careful not to repeat that mistake. And instead, I prefer to spend a lot of my energy up front in understanding the end user, the different stakeholders, and then start thinking about the solution. So that was kind of a huge motivator, just feeling that drastically helped. 
You know, that brings up an interesting point. I often talk about what actually is failure. How does one define failure? Is that not reaching your goal? Is that the failure? Or is the real failure not learning from your failure? I'm curious, how would you define failure? That's actually wonderfully articulated because my actual definition is not learning from your mistake. So if I use that definition, I actually did not fail at that time because I learned in a very, very strong way from that mistake. But at that point, I think, and maybe I'd want to almost rephrase what I said, it wasn't failure. It was literally designing a system that didn't have takers, right? Or that wasn't doing the job to be done for the end user. It was just doing the job I want it done. So yeah, I think that in fact, I'll rephrase that. I don't think I failed. And I think I give myself a lot of credit for that. Imagine being 23. Once I realized that the system's actually not working, I used to go on the weekends and speak to these parents and students and be like, tell me everything wrong that you think exists in this. Tell me about your day-to-day life. Tell me why we aren't fitting in. And that taught me a lot about humility as well, right? Like imagine going from being this know-it-all and like just sitting and saying, tell me everything we've done wrong. Tell me about your life. Tell me where we fit in. Tell me where we don't. So in that sense, I think what I learned from rephrasing that was I built something that did not really solve the job to be done for the user. But I don't think I failed because I learned after the first couple of months of of crying and wondering why these people weren't getting such a great system, I adapted quite rapidly. I often talk to people about failure and they think that, oh, I just failed and I didn't do what I want to do. But then I ask them, did you actually learn something? Because if you actually learn something, then you haven't failed. The real failure for me comes when you keep doing the same thing and not learning. Then that is a failure. (laughs) And so I think often the thing is, if you keep learning and moving forward, and that was actually triggered by, you know, when I heard, if you want to increase your success rate, you basically have to double your failure rate, right? And how do you actually get to success sometimes? It may not be the first try, the second try, the third try, but with each iteration, if you keep learning and evolving and moving forward, you will get to that success point. Yeah, I think you said it really well, right? And in fact, now that I reflect, I think what we did was that instead of feeling fast, we literally were trying to come up with this perfect value proposition in a silo. And then doing this large launch and hoping it'll work. And since then, I have adapted my methodology a lot where one, of course, I first try and understand the stakeholder. But two, I just literally go out there with the most basic version of what I'm trying to propose and just get a sanity check. And this one's been hard for me because I don't enjoy being laughed at. But frankly, you know, I was piloting and working on some aggregated channel food delivery piece. And I remember standing outside Whole Foods in Cambridge, trying to get people to respond to some digital ordering system we were talking and being laughed at like crazy and also being hounded away from the parking lot, you know, because people were just freaked out why this group of 25-year-olds were just going around asking these weird questions on a sheet of paper with this ugly outline of a digital ordering kiosk, if you will. So that's been a huge learning curve, which is like, fail quickly, fail really fast, and just embrace that piece. Because that's much better than, you know, spending six months or a year going into hibernation, trying to carve out this perfect masterpiece, and then just being completely disconnected from your user. So yeah, I now think about rejections as a goldmine, because it's telling you so much of what they don't want. (laughs) Well, that's another point I've often learned is often great learning comes from actually being agitated and frustrated, right? Because that just forces you to think. So I'm not always upset being a bit agitated or upset, but I'm not an advocate of being agitated or upset all the time. But sometimes it forces you for that extra step saying, you know, this is really annoying. And then you say, ah, maybe I should do this. You know, I think people should push for that moment. And it sounds like you've learned to do that. Yeah. And, you know, 
it's almost like a switch going from off to on. You suddenly start seeing the same piece of information so differently. Like I remember dreading doing uh, consumer interviews or interactions in my first year of when I began working. And after that, I was like, no, I want to do it. I literally want to understand every way in which we're getting something wrong. I want to understand this person in their context. So hearing no, not feeding them an answer and truly understanding what they want, it completely changed. It went from something I dreaded to being something like, oh, this is a goldmine of information. This is a goldmine of learning. And it's sort of completely changed the way I approach a lot of things since then. It sounds like that's part of what's led you to be more curious but also pursue more unstructured, chaotic situations <laughs> as opposed yeah. to structured. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, in the intersections we talked about, business and tech, creativity, analytics, soft and hard skills, I'm curious, what are some common human elements or behaviors that you found that kind of goes across all of them when you look at these intersections? I suspect there's some commonalities, and I'm curious, what are they? I think there are a couple of things that I find interesting, but I'm sort of going to hone in on two of them. One is just the role of bias and how carefully you have to design, whether it's in reviewing, you know, an art piece or whether it's thinking about an algorithm, whether it's thinking about different sort of organizational systems. Bias is inevitable. The question is, how do you factor for that? Because otherwise, if you just, you know, think about bias and you just pause over there, you're literally not going to get anything done. And some of this literally goes back to my undergrad days, which was a lot in science and engineering. Literally, when you began an experimentation, you almost identified a zero level state, which factored in the bias in the instrument. And you often have to think about that, right? So for example, if I'm building a product for a segment target audience that I'm completely disconnected from, the first thing I'll do is here are like five things that I might have no idea about my target segment. For example, I've worked in the States, I worked in China, and literally the first thing I had to do is what are my unconscious biases about these countries? Or what are the things that I have no idea about? And this also applies to algorithms all the time. When you think about recommendation engines, when you think about filtering processes, you have to step in and say, what's my bias coming in? How am I sort of thinking about that? And how am I protecting for that? So I think that's definitely one that I've definitely seen the connection across all of these. The second is really how incomplete each of these things are, right? So if you just think of them in silos, you will never get a perfect answer. So let's take the example of I worked in healthcare and we used to do a lot of stuff around Will AIs replace doctors and diagnosis? The answer is no. They're going to augment them. They're going to give them the tools to make their lives better. But eventually, it's going to be a combination of human understanding of years of medical research and study and complement that with just having a lot of information easily accessible. The same thing exists in education. You can't completely replace a teacher or human interaction. You can augment it by having a lot of pre-recorded content readily available. So I think these are the two things that I've really taken away, that systems inherently have bias and how do you think about that and factor for that? And the second, of course, is how do you think about the complementary nature of all of these things? And that's also been true in a lot of my roles, right, which have involved bringing cross-functional stakeholders from very different teams together because I just knew one function couldn't solve this. So that's kind of been two themes that I find very relevant across anything I've done. Tell me about the work you're doing at Open Secret. What's Open Secret all about? 
you know, Open Secret began with a very simple problem statement, which is that the food you eat should be tasty, but should not have any of the guilt associated with it, right? And that's sort of been an increasing problem statement where as people are growing short on time, they're relying a lot on prepackaged food. And the challenge there has been that a lot of it is just full of materials that are not doing your body any good. There have been a lot of niche companies that have come up to the extreme dieter, the extreme gym bro. But our problem statement was eventually every human being wants a better for you option. So it's not like eating kale all the time, or it's not like drinking some really bitter juice all the time. It's just knowing that, hey, I could be substituting dessert I love with better for you ingredients. Now, coming back to this question around aha moments, we've taken a very radically different approach in all of this. First is we began as a brand that played across like every category. We did sweet, we did savory, we did beverages. And the logic was that the better for you philosophy applies across the board. Second, and this is something that investors as well as our competitors found shocking, was that we decided to aggregate into a platform because our entire problem statement was that eventually I'm not competing with other small niche brands. I'm competing with the large incumbents. And so aggregating together just gives consumers better optionality, a one-stop place to get everything they need. And as a business, it just gives you more operating leverage, right? When you're sort of able to aggregate your supply chain, aggregate your purchasing powers, you're just able to do it in a better way. So a lot of our competitors now became brands that are listed on the platform. We believe that consumers buy food across the channels. So we're an omni-channel brand. You think about any channel and we're there. So that's really been the mission is like, how do you create this better for you ecosystem across the board? And I think just the final thing there, we evolved from just thinking about food to thinking about related better for you services. So how do you think about the role of nutritional information about a specialist, a dietitian as an offering? So how do you give people the tools to make better for you choices across the board? And that's kind of the journey I've been on for almost two years now. So what component is education and learning to use your service even better? It seems like in order to really understand it, the consumer needs to be educated to use it properly. Is that correct? So I think it's a combination of two things, right? So initially, and this was a very strategic business call, the last five to 10 years, people have really benefited from a lot of marketing dollars going into creating awareness about certain facts, right? Which is like, hey, why don't you substitute out sugar for better sweeteners? Can you do away with gluten in certain areas? So thankfully, I don't think it's fully about education. But I think the role that a lot of our consultation services plays in isn't really becoming a part of that person's life and eventually having a long-term relationship and having a long-term value with that consumer. Because one of the challenges with trying to do anything new or change any sort of lifestyle is that you could have a lot of one-and-done customers where people come in, they do it once, but they don't really stick to it. So one of the reasons that we aggregated all of these options together, the fact that we had all of these consultation services is so that people are able to really get the support to make the lifestyle shift, because otherwise it's going to be a one done. Give me an example, like what exactly am I going to be seeing and getting as a consumer or one of your clients? So I think first and foremost, we're an e-commerce aggregator, right? So if you come and you think about literally from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, if you thought about literally every food item you eat, you'd have a better for you option available, right? From different types of milk, different types of staples, different types of snacks, 
So you wouldn't be somebody who's just buying like a bar from here, but still sticking to the traditional larger standard options for other things. You'd literally find everything you needed. And this would be across sweet, savory, staples, snacks, so that you don't have to do a lot of the hunting and thinking. You can just come here. So that's number one, right? Which is really having the wide variety of curation. Number two, sometimes people don't actually know what they're looking for. They know the problem they're trying to solve. So they talk about like certain dietary restrictions and they'd be like, hey, what all can I eat which is gluten-free? What all can I eat which is a vegan? What all can I eat which is, you know, India is a very diverse country. So there are even like religious restrictions. So people will just say, hey, you know, Jainism is a religion in India. And they'll be like, what all is Jain-friendly food? So the equivalent of that abroad would be like, what is kosher, right? So you come with the problem statement and we'll do the filtering for you, right? I mean, we in this case is probably the website, but in general, we also operate across channels and you can literally give us your problem statement and we'll solve it for you. You have the curation, you have the whole collection, you have the filtering and customization specifically for you. So, you know, if Darshan comes, we can tell what Darshan needs to eat. And then the third is, you know, you sometimes just need a coach, just need somebody who's telling you how to make this change. How do you make it in a sustainable way? So we literally have a coach working with you, Darshan, and being like, here are the changes you can make. Here are the changes we can put off for later. And here are the different types of like food and options that you could be eating. So yeah, I think first and foremost, we're sort of looking at doing it from a just curation perspective. And then of course, there is the service layer we're trying to build on top of that. So what insights have you gained and how do you address people's desire, even though they know what is right for them, what is healthy for them? they still have a need for guilty pleasures. Absolutely, 100%. So I think there have been a couple of insights. One, you just can't compromise on the taste. We sometimes do 100 iterations of a certain recipe because eventually, I mean, not only if you want to build a business, but if you also want to make a long-term change, it has to be better for you, but it has to match the taste. And that takes an extremely long R&D process, a lot of consumer testing. So I think that's number one, right? You actually can't compromise on taste. If you want to build a large business and if you want to for the masses, like I said at the beginning, this is not a niche brand for the person who already lives an extremely disciplined lifestyle. This is a place for anybody trying to make better for you choices. So that's number one. Number two, even in indulgence, there are certain things people are willing to compromise and certain things they're not willing to compromise. And that goes everything from texture, taste, to shelf life. So for each of our categories, we have to do a lot of consumer interviews, discussions to understand what is the aha factor of that product that we are willing, not willing to let go of. And what have you found? It actually varies drastically across segments. So in certain segments, it's like when you go to savory, you won't believe how much people care about texture. So they'll say, oh, it lacks the crunch, right? It's like, it doesn't seem like that. It's literally not giving me the sound when I bite. Or that sensation, right? That crunch yeah. sensation. The crunch sensation. When it comes to something sweet, it's essentially that sweet punch. What's just the right sweet punch? You have to think about textures kind of like a people don't care that much. And then, of course, when you're thinking about your segment, and then I think eventually you also have to realize some of it is extremely personal, which is the reason we decided to become a platform because you just could not build all of these innovative products in-house. 
because India is an extremely diverse country. Like literally every region sometimes has different preferences. So we literally have to call out that this might be good for a spicy palate. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that came in. But I think, yeah, the one that really stood out to me was how much people care about the texture and the bite when it comes to a certain set of skews. And I think the second part, and you sort of hit the nail on the head, people tell you one thing, like they want to live this ideal life, but they don't actually, they're not going to do that, right? They give you the morally correct answer. So they'll tell you, of course, I don't want to eat sugar. Of course, I'm committed to doing that. But for the masses, that's usually not the case. They're willing to make adjustments. They are willing to make trade-offs. But you have to really think about that if you want to be a mass appealing thing, which is how much is this person willing to do and how much is too much? And I think the last point there, and it's very interesting that it's the name of this blog, you have to give them the aha moment (laughs) at every phase. Calories saved grams of protein that you've incurred. So I often liken it to nudging my toddler, niece or nephew to get to the finish line when I'm trying to get them to play or like finish a task. Similarly, when you're trying to help people make lifestyle changes, you're actually trying to nudge them and give them the small aha moments and also be realistic of what they're willing to do and what they're not. If you want to be a mass platform, if you want to go after a niche, very motivated audience, then you you have a different problem statement. But yeah, you have to think a lot about the ahas, the small nudges, and the trade-offs that people are willing to live with. So it sounds like a big part of what you're doing is you're actually getting people to change their lifestyle and mindset. And can you tell me, what are the three things you found that help you do that? I mean, what are the three things that you say, you know, if we do these consistently, we have seen it successfully causes people to have a shift in their mindset and ultimately their lifestyle. I think we eventually want to support people who already have the desire to change it. I don't think we're trying to go after the audience that is a very large audience, which already has it. So I think the three things that we've really realized, one is understanding the core motivation of why they are looking for better for you choices. And, you know, by the way, it comes down to two or three things. One is literally just feeling more energetic. A lot of our target segment are working professionals who have extremely busy lives and they just want more energy. For some people, it's vanity. They literally want to look better. For some people who are parents, it's like having more energy and being a better example for their kids. So I think really understanding the core motivation. And I think number two has been reinforcing how they are benefiting from it. So a lot of our communication begins with how will this make you feel better? What is it going to do for you, for your energy levels, etc.? And number three, and this has been like a long learning curve for us, you can't compromise on the non-negotiable. If that's taste, if that's the bite, if the crunch, because then you're going to have like just a casual consumer. You're not going to have a lifelong consumer. And that makes our job pretty difficult. But that's just been a learning for us. You can't compromise what they fundamentally care about because they're not going to stick with you. They'll do it once, they'll do it twice, but they're not going to stick with you. Have you figured out the balance between taste, texture, and even temperature? I think temperature is a big factor too, is it not? So I think, honestly, the answer is it's work in progress. It's different for every category and it's very driven by consumer preferences. And it's a lot about just seeing like, how is your consumer responding? And by the way, we haven't even talked about the elephant in the room in today's environment. We have to think about cost. All of these things to do in a cost-effective manner that is not throwing your supply chain off is extremely hard. I came back to this space, what's now being called the digital space, which is physical and digital combined, because frankly, it's so much harder 
Your decisions have far broader consequences. You deal with actual physical goods. Sometimes I miss the digital world where you could literally like start and stop something so seamlessly, but humans live in the physical world. So I think a lot of that has gone into making sure that we are constantly iterating. What do you see happening in the future? What do you see on the horizon? What are areas that interest you more? You think there's trends or things that are happening that you want to take a deeper dive in? You know, I think there are two main themes that I'm really interested in. And one is this intersection of coming together of well-being, which indicates which exists in food, which exists in traditional healthcare, which exists in like things like sleep exercise. So all of these intersections coming together. And once we start seeing them as a whole, right, it's very surprising how all of these are now eventually coming together and human well-being operates at their intersection. And right now, the way we approach it is often in silos, right? You'll have really large food companies, you'll have really large like fitness companies, you'll have really large hospital chains, but they're kind of all interdependent how the humans operate there. So that's number one that I'm really interested in. And number two, and I mean, again, this is sort of like literally everybody, is the human machine intersection? What part of this is getting done by humans, which could be like AI and all the buzz around that, or just using tech to augment your life and what is left to humans? Eventually, what are the things that humans humans are best suited to be doing? And what does that mean for the future of work? So I think those are two themes that I'm super interested in, which is human well-being and what all does it entail? And number two is, again, how do you think about the human-machine intersection? And I see that at work every day. And I'm also very excited on how that's going to shape up in the next few years. If you could have lunch or dinner with anybody in your industry, who would it be and why? I think one person, and this is sort of not traditionally industry, but I'd really think about Michelle Obama because she pioneered a lot about health, food, and exercise from the programs that she ran for the school kids when Barack Obama was the president. And I think the reason why I'm citing that is because one of my learnings has been that while recently I've mostly been on the capitalist company side, a lot of problem statements like health, well-being, and education have a very strong policy angle, and we often forget that. So not my industry, but definitely in terms of the sphere of influence, I would love to understand on how someone with that degree of influence thought about policy and the role of individual companies in, in meeting those well-being goals. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you being a guest. Likewise. And I look forward to seeing how you grow your business and the next chapters that unfold. And please come back again and give us an update as well on how you're doing and what other insights you glean along your journey from understanding humans better. Absolutely. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.